everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm Norm. I'm still learning. And here we are with Remote Viewing Part 3, the epilogues. Mm-hmm. Here we're going to find out what happened to everyone that didn't survive to the oh my God. defunding of the mid-90s and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the most perplexing journey you've taken me on so far. There's been hijinks. There's been some wild characters. HPB is an absolute legend. But getting the uh, American intelligence, well, not just the American intelligence apparatus, the Soviets are involved in this, the CIA, military intelligence, all kind of bureaucrats. I, it's hard to believe this is real. Like I'm finding this actual history harder to believe than some of the spiritual concepts that you've presented. That's funny because I'm in a way the opposite. Really? I find this so easy to believe. Yeah, it's, I guess it's one of those like stranger than fiction type moments where it's like, it's, it's true, but it's sort of like, wow, this is what reality is actually like. What a crazy world. It's messy. And the reality of, in some ways, the seeker's journey or how people encounter these types of ideas is messy Mm -hmm. and where they spin out. You know, how Ed Danes ended up talking about aliens and crossing paths with Heaven's Gate. That's also messy. You know what I really want to explore? And there's probably no good answer for this. But what I'd like to explore is when you have an earnest seeker, the most profound and lasting experiences are very personal. They're very individual. But it seems like so many of these stories are seekers who really wanted to bring people with them. You know, like remote viewing is real, and I think it has applications for the military. Seances are real, and it's a social thing, you know? I don't want to give away what our next series is going to be yet, Mm -hmm. but I can say that from both what we've seen and where we're going, that seems to be a feature of having a revelatory experience is immediately wanting to take Mm -hmm. people with you or apply it to something larger than yourself. Not just saying, well, I'm enlightened now. Let let me go back to my, what I was doing. (laughs) And I think that's really interesting because it's easy to extrapolate to other parts of the human condition. When we see a good movie, don't we recommend it to everyone? Right. Well, I'm thinking about you right now. You've you've got a, a toddler who I think is at an age where he might learn something and it's news to him and it's exciting and he comes running to you. Mom, mom, guess what I learned today? You know, rocks are made out of stone or something. I don't know. What, whatever you discover as a toddler. The latest was that he realized that dogs in real life can't talk like they can in cartoons. Huh. He was watching Bluey and then he looked at our cat and was like, cats can't talk. I was going to say, he's has he ever not had cats in the house? That should be familiar territory for him. I'd say George is more willing to tolerate his presence in a way that he wasn't Mm. for a long period of time. (laughs) Fair enough. But yeah, you you discover something and you want to share it. Like I I do understand that, I guess. Well, let's see where some of these folks ended up. We let's start with Ingo Swan. This is like the end of Animal House where it's just freeze frame title card. Bluto went on to be a US senator. But if they'd expanded that to at least a half an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Ingo Swan, we last left off as he'd been the contractor for developing a remote viewing training method, right. how to make a handbook, how to pass it on to people. And he was let go as a contractor in the mid 80s. And he wrote a lot of books throughout the rest of his life. And I got my hands on one of the books that came out in 1987, right around the time mm-hmm. he'd been let go from his contract. It was called Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP. So presumably he was working on this while under contract, if he had it ready to go right after he got 
uh, let go or non-renewed or whatever. I think it's a. I think it's where his mind was at at the time. I think a lot of mm. us floating around. I don't think he had to reach very far for any of it. He, sure. for example, cautioned strongly against labeling abilities. Hmm. So calling something telepathy or psychokinesis because it would actually mess with the ability to do something. So by trying to put one's abilities in a box and experience it that way, uh-huh. it would interfere with the process of actually experiencing something. I can actually see that. I think that has analogs in a lot of areas of our life, yeah. So, for example, if you're expecting to see something in remote viewing as if it's a movie in your head, that will interfere with actually perceiving remote viewing as it's unfolding for you in the individual experience. You may not even engage with it when it happens because it doesn't look how you expected it to. And that expectation is, I think, a key thing that blocks Mm -hmm. this type of psychism and psychic experiences because it doesn't feel special if it happens to you, if it's not like you expect. Mm. So how many psychics say they didn't think anything was special about them for a very long time when they they start to develop their abilities because it's a natural functioning? And if they don't already have that showmanship gene that puts you on stage, if that's not your impulse, yeah. He was adamant that every single person had what he called an ESP core. Mm -hmm. I think if we phrased it now, we'd say everyone has the ability to be psychic. Mm -hmm. ESP is very of that era and how they discuss it. And what he did was he divided the information that can be perceived with ESP as that was easier than dividing up how the information was received. So ESP can generally be divided into three categories. He called them hardwired, semi-softwired, and softwired. Okay, that tells me nothing. (laughs) He credited the division to how the Russians were describing their research at the time. Wait, how did he know at the time what the Russians were doing? I thought that was way bunkered down. Weren't they in a mine? There was some stuff that was published. There was some stuff out there. And... So let me go over these categories because I could not think about hard anything except hard-boiled eggs as I was imagining it. <laughs> yeah, those categories do nothing for me. So hardwired ESP concerns perceiving and describing a thing or event that can be immediately confirmed. Sure. So remote okay. viewing yeah. covers this. And draw objects that are on a table in another room. Yeah, that you can submarine diagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And semi-soft, which is definitely a name I do not care for. <laughs> As a man, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. Is the receiving of new information in order to materialize something. So this strikes me as something that could also be described as divine inspiration or how HPV would squint and copy texts from her photographic memory. So I've never seen a mousetrap, but with my hard wiring, I can draw one if I look for it. This is how I would build a better mousetrap that doesn't exist, but I receive information to it the results of information you get from the semi-soft wired is something that is objective and demonstrable so having a dream and then painting something exactly like it okay you can't confirm someone else can't confirm that you've painted your dream but you will know and you will have created yeah you can materialize something Based off of something that's not confirmable. Yeah. So you have a hunch, you get a psychic impression, you get a vision of the future, and so you do something differently. Hmm. Okay. So maybe hardwired is you paint a portrait of a person. That you've never seen before, and then you go look at them and they look exactly the same. Yeah. But this would be painting a portrait of a, of a person who doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Or of them as a child, and there's no way to know except... Like no photographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
And then the softwired ESP was everything that can't be demonstrated in an objective way. So these are philosophical, visionary, talking with masters. But if the information that does come through and it becomes tangible, then it moves into the other category of semi-soft. So the end result of software ESP in and of itself, if it doesn't move to another category, is that it's increasing awareness, perception, the deepening of engaging with and finding meaning in the intangible. And Swan included also consulting the Akashic records in this. And I thought it'd be a good time to give you a brief info dump on what the Akashic records are. I was just going to (laughs) ask. Because I think they can get a lot of sexy branding. And I think they're really just another entry point into tapping into the big, soft, cosmic, psychic pool. (laughs) But they can be actively marketed as something to acquire And I've seen courses such as learn the Akashic records that cost five grand, whereas you can also read a book and I think have the same experience if you really want to engage Uh, with them. So uh, I listed this from Goswan's book. The Akashic records is a corruption of the Sanskrit word Akasa, which in ancient Mm. Hindu mysticism referred to the primeval element that existed before the physical creation out of chaos of the cosmos. It is homogeneous or undifferentiated, but is thought to carry an imprint of everything that has existed or happened since creation. Some psychics feel that they can consult these imprints in certain conditions of consciousness, hence the idea of records. The Hebrew Old Testament refers to Akasa as the cosmic waters. Contemporary quantum physics is struggling with the concept that's analogous to Akasha. And this is where in certain New Age writing, you will start to see the scientific illusion that blah, 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 quantum physicists prove this new age principle is true. I don't know enough about quantum physics to be comfortable with any statement in spirituality that references them. Thank God, neither am I. But when you see, this is why my spiritual or psychic theory is totally true, because quantum and Akasha proves it. Uh, Like we talked about in human design, it doesn't need it. Yeah. And you can tap into the Akashic records as a framework without needing to pass through any other belief system. But... As I was writing this, it occurred to me the old anthropological system of understanding something in and of itself. And I think the Akashic Mm -hmm. records are something you can understand in and of themselves. But to see them as an entry point into just any sort of expanded consciousness feels less grifty to me, especially having looked into it and seen that people want to portray it as this magical portal that you can learn to walk through. Whereas I also read a book about accessing Akashic records through a process of you know, meditation and a hypno- hypnotic script that I think would be just as effective. There's no rights or anything that you need to be anointed with in order to access it. It's from a personal altered state of consciousness, which you can achieve through any meditation technique. All right, I, w- I want to run this back by you to make sure I'm following you correctly. It sounds like another name for the general principle that everything is connected you know, we're all made of stardust and we're all sort of maybe pieces of a single entity. I would say instead universal consciousness and the idea that it's universal consciousness since creation. So if I wanted to do a psychic reading on you and access your Akashic records, I could look into your past and where certain events took place, where things happened. And it seems to also function then as a framework for accessing that type of psychic ability 
that might not necessarily be dependent on the Akashic records themselves being real. It could be a, a thought experiment that gets you into a psychic state. Okay. How, how's this for an analogy? Everybody is a radio and this is how you tune your antenna to a frequency where you can hear, you know, sort of the background noise of the universe. Akasha is a radio and when you tune into it, you're looking for a specific thing. Right. Trying to find a specific station and not just it's all out there. Yeah. Incoherent noise. Yeah. It's all it's all being broadcast all the time and you're trying to But it's all findable. Anything yeah. you're looking for is there. And we all have the antenna. Mm-hmm. But you can actually develop your antenna. <laughs> it's not a, a fixed appendage. So as one went on to describe how the ESP core of every person resides at the bottom of their mind mound. Again, I did not love a lot of his terms in this book. And it sends up rays of information that penetrate subconscious and at the last level, waking consciousness like a daisy popping up and pre-existing beliefs against that belief, push it back down. And people who develop their ESP are essentially allowing more of the stuff from your psychic ability to come up into your conscious mind. Mm. So it's almost like it's I know this isn't what he's saying, but it's almost like it's a part of your brain, like almost like it's an organ in your body, but a lot of people don't actively engage with it. You can control your breathing, but it's hard to consciously control your heart rate. And he's talking about there's this other piece of you that you can start to focus your mind to be aware of, potentially change, use, whatever. So much of this jives with what I've heard from psychics on describing their ability and how they've developed mm. it about okay. widening awareness, allowing it and building a whole new trust in themselves and how they're receiving new information. Mm. It's it's no different than learning to listen to one's gut reaction. Yeah, it's learning to learn. You get a bad feeling about a person and because of yeah. whatever deep belief about politeness or how you should act, you suffer through the conversation at a party, looking for a nice exit despite a part of you screaming that I need to get away from this person. Right, right. Obviously, there's lots of ways and a lot more mundane examples. You could be in a department store and need an outfit and flash of inspiration. You turn left versus going, oh, why did I do that? Let me look at the directory mm-hmm. and being convinced that that's how you have to find an answer versus sort of reaching inside, requesting the answer and being open to how you get it. So mm. this seems to be let's say a crossroads of thinking when people start to lean on their intuition, because we can trust our intuition about people think more easily. They're do they seem nice? Do they seem easy? And our intuitions about ourselves and our own lives. Should we do this? Should we do that? Based on past experiences and how we grow up, those can be really tampered down if you don't have a lot of self-trust. But you have multiple sources of information to draw on and support or contradict your intuition. But you can still have your intuition be right without necessarily going to those to back it up and prove yourself right, right every time versus people sure. who really live in their self-trust and their own intuition. Mm, okay. I like this framework. And so developing psychic ability seems to live in this space if you have to develop a new trust around yourself. Yeah. Okay. Now, speaking of people who wrote books about widening psychic perception, we are yeah. continuing on to our Ingo epilogue by stopping in with a lady named Nancy Duterte. Tertre. T-E-R-T-R-E, very difficult name to pronounce. And she wrote a book called Psychic Intuition, Everything You Wanted to Ask, But Were Afraid to Know. Ooh, perfect. Great title. I really enjoyed it because she very much started her life as a skeptic. She had a day job as a corporate lawyer and she didn't leave it. She was following this 
you know, think of remote viewing for missing people, psychic impressions on objects, hardwired to use Ingo's language, and she just kept her day job. She's exploring remote viewing, not professionally, not with application, just she's just learning. It seemed like she was in a stitching group, except they worked on missing people. <laughs> which sounded so fun. So she met Ingo in the early 2000s and, quote, forced him to be my mentor, she said in this YouTube interview clip I saw. She, by the way, if I had to provide an image, looks like a total mom, a normal lady you'd see at Target. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So in her encounter, Ingo is already in his 70s. And here's her description of the meeting. Ingo's studio in the windowless basement of his building is cave-like and filled with huge, haunting, illuminated metaphysical paintings, many open tubes of oil paint, brushes and glass bottles, a few old ripped chairs, and an office filled to the brim with a huge desk and bookshelves spilling over with books crammed in shelves up to the ceiling. When I met him the first time, he was dressed casually, much as one would expect of an artist. He ushered me into his cramped little office where I squeezed sideways into a wooden chair that was wedged between the desk and the wall. He proceeded to light up a small cigar. He held it with a pair of tweezers in his hand and waited for me to speak. Ingo had the rather confusing look of a European aristocrat puffing away at a marijuana roach from a homemade cigarette holder. Dense smoke permeated the entire small space almost immediately. Attempting to make some pleasant introductory small talk, I said my father also enjoyed a good cigar after dinner on the rare occasion. Barely glancing at me, Ingo retorted contemptuously, I never smoke good cigars. <laughs> he was unforgiving in his analysis of my questions. If I did not pose a question in the exact right format, he was quick to reprimand me, telling me that faulty questions produced faulty answers. Describing them walking to a diner, she said, For a self-proclaimed recluse, I thought to myself, Ingo sure seemed to know an awful lot of people. He said hello to them in a patchwork of their own native languages, Spanish, Chinese, French. He ran her through an exercise of what to perceive in my hand, and she voices it. Mm. She doesn't draw it, though. She describes a pipe, a square at the end, and a sprocket. Like a little, little thing like this to hold something or grab it. And lo and behold, what's the item in his hand? But earrings. Huh. And so a pair of studs. And so from this story, yeah. she pushes the lesson that not casting out what you're perceiving because it's not fitting what you think you should be seeing. And right. also highlighting a point he labored on, which was draw, 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 because impressions that are translated into drawing things don't pass through this judgy mind the way our words right. do. You're trying to fit it to a pattern. Instead, you're just trying to capture the shapes or the general impression. But I was, I was floored by her description of him then. And now I need to take you to the other book I got my hands on by Ingo Swan called Penetration, The Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. Sigh. Extraterrestrial? <laughs> I don't remember that coming up in the remote viewing uh, process. So he describes something called the Jupiter Experiment. You already know how I feel about aliens and how they make me uncomfortable. Aww. So in April 1973, they do an off-the-books experiment to see what Swan could observe on Jupiter when in... September of that year, NASA was set to have some results from the mission there. And they were going to compare. What does NASA get back? What did Ingo Swan oh, see? So for feedback, they're doing a remote viewing right as there's going to be a, a flyby mm -hmm. so that they can potentially look at some pictures and try to, well, get some feedback. So here's what some of the things he described. Water, ice crystals, and atmosphere. And that was confirmed in 1975. Crystal bands reflect radio probes. Confirmed. 1975. Magnetic electromagnetic auroras or rainbows, also confirmed. A planetary ring inside the atmosphere, confirmed. 
liquid composition, confirmed in 73, 76, as hydrogen was in its liquid form there. Mountains and solid core, that was questionable, but was suspected to be confirmed in 91. And six of these 13 factors were given scientific substantiation by 1975. And here are the other ones. Something like tornadoes, Mm. high infrared reading, temperature inversion, cloud color configuration, dominant orange color. That's very compelling, but I also don't know the history of astronomy well enough to know how much of that could have been reasonably guessed and didn't require confirmation by satellite. I don't know. Like, was that new information or better proof of existing theories? I think it was new. I get the feeling that that's why they were doing it was to, it was new. We didn't know Jupiter was orange then. But I got to say, I couldn't get into the rest of the book. It came out in 1998, (laughs) which was around the time of the Hale-Bopp, the Coast to Coast Heaven's Gate debacle. And I couldn't get more out of the manuscript to share. It didn't change my opinion on Swan. I didn't be like, oh, I wrote about aliens. I hate him now. Um, I think the unseen world includes something beyond the earthly plane, but it feels like looking up out of the world versus into it. And there's just so much more, I think, to focus on in the self. And the idea of aliens and extraterrestrial beings is a way of taking the focus out of the self. So I am compelled by theories that UFOs and things like that are a psychic phenomena and relate to our mm. core, our spiritual self. It's not just us and you know, these little green men. But what you just said hits me like the spiritual equivalent of Whitey on the moon. What what are we wasting our time up there with when there's plenty down here to reconcile? Okay. One podcast host I like who is much more into alien abductions and the mysteries. He said mm. once that alien encounters or chasing aliens can ruin someone's life. I know said really jokingly, but I think about how encounters with ghosts, they don't ruin people's lives or psychic experiences or spiritual experiences. They can disrupt your life, but they're not ruining your life. You're not guaranteed a sad ending by pursuing or even trying to prove its existence. Maybe you've changed, but there's more confirmation than with alien entity experiences. I think make it easier to prevail oneself with the resources and mysteries of the unseen world without being you know, the guy in the office that won't shut up about aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of, I think, where the focus is. Like, I'm curious if someone has an abduction story, mm-hmm. how that resonates for the self. How is that affecting someone's spiritual journey? And I feel like a lot of the stories end with, this happened and then things got real sad in their life. It, it does seem like the difference between, they're both making a claim that something happened, right? I had this personal experience. One is saying... I need to interrogate it because I'm not sure how to explain it. And on the other, you have someone saying, I can explain it and it defies believability. Like it's very materialist when you're being abducted, you know, probes and uh, uh, unfamiliar alloys and all that. So you're, you're making very bold claims about the material world that are very, very difficult to prove because there's going to be material evidence with the spirit spiritual experiences, there isn't really material evidence sans ectoplasm. (laughs) So yeah, what you're asking people to believe is kind of unmeasurable expectations. I think it's also framing it because if you frame it as I had this abduction, just calling it an abduction experience versus a possession experience, I had an out of body experience, just using that abduction language also frames it in Mm. this materialist way. 
Whereas yeah. if you said, I had a weird out-of-body experience with angels, entities, however you frame it really shifts this connotation. And by choosing to frame it in aliens, I think is a cult real cultural choice. Yeah. I also don't know what abduction stories, or even if there are abduction stories outside of the U.S. Like, I don't know how much of a cultural narrative that's become. There are. There are. It's a, mostly about how they get publicized. Like, there's a lot in Brazil, mm. Brazil and South Africa. Interesting. I did not know that. Anyway, but more factually, Ingo Swan died in mm. New York in 2013. He published a ton of books in his lifetime, including mm -hmm. The Great Apparitions of Mary, an examination of 22 supernormal appearances, Your Nostradamus Factor, accessing mm. your innate ability to see into the future, Psychic mm. Sexuality, the biopsychic anatomy of sexual energies. I don't think I want to know anything else about that one. And his unfinished autobiography is available on his website, ingoswan.com. I mean, he seemed like a groovy dude. How, how unfinished? I think it's 60% done. Oh, wow. Okay. It's not edited very well, so yeah, it's yeah. a little rambly. <laughs> so our next epilogue character is Russell Targ. Oh, boy. So after he left SRI in 1982, he went on to author mm. and co-author a ton of books. This is a common theme. Yeah. He authored Limitless Mind, A Guide to Remote Viewing and Transformation of Consciousness, Do What I See, Memoirs of a Blind Biker, that phenomenon of being able to bike without seeing. I had never really thought about that, but that's that seems incredibly pertinent to the whole premise of remote viewing. I, I may have left this out of our initial coverage, but when Yuri Geller first showed up to SRI in the beginning, mm -hmm. out of the airport, he pulled that thing where he blindfolded himself and drove the car. What? But Russell Targ, because he was familiar with it, knew that this could also be a magic trick. There's a way to do it. Right, right. That is... On the, is it psychic? Is it stage magic? But he, Geller came right out the gate, like swinging. All right, I'm driving the rental. Mm -hmm. Well, blindfolding is one thing, but I'm thinking of someone who is actually physically blind or so profoundly visually impaired that they would be stretching other muscles and relying on other senses. Oh, someone must have written that book. Well, I would have thought they would recruit some vision impaired individuals into this program. That seems like a way to leapfrog some of the very initial, this is real, you can train it. Interesting. The other book you wrote was The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. That was published oh. in 2012. So these are pretty recently co-authored Mind Reach back in the 70s, Mind Race, Understanding and Using Psychic Abilities, Miracles of the Mind, Exploring Non-Local Consciousness, a lot of books that pr went to prove or tried to prove existence. And uh, he didn't give up on lasers. <laughs> He had a citation from as recently as 96, which I realize isn't super recent, but compared to the 60s and 70s. Uh, yeah, different time period. Coherent LIDAR airborne wind sensor. Flight test results from, those are some scientific notations that I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, is, is that controversial? Isn't LIDAR what they're trying to build self-driving cars on? Like, that's real. I don't think it's controversial at all. <laughs> it yeah. just shows he didn't give up on the lasers. Huh. So the book I got my hands on from him was The Reality of ESP. And here's the dedication for Ingo Swan and for all who cherish our capacity for unobstructed awareness. It's really nice. Yeah. One thing I liked from the book was the introduction title, Why I Believe in ESP and Why You Should Too, besides, <laughs> yeah. you know, bold statement, yeah. is that he thought he thought he was convincing and succinct, not just on the topic of ESP, but where I think we land after, you know, our remote viewing episodes. Here's a... Uh, Here's a quote of it. 
My firm conclusion from decades of ESP research is that we significantly misapprehend the physical and the psychological nature of interconnected space-time in which we live. Remote viewing is not a spiritual path. However, living in a spacious and interconnected world such as I'm describing, one tends to be more open and compassionate than in a state of mind that is isolated and insulated. In exploring what physicists call our non-local awareness, we begin to feel that the Buddhists have it right as they say again and again that separation is an illusion, that all is connected. In this world of entanglement or extended minds, compassion seems to me to be the natural conclusion. Also, he did get a dig into menesteric goats when having a look back at SRI's involvement with the army. Quote, <laughs> this has little to do with the recent film, Menesteric Goats, in which a goat was mm-hmm. psychically killed, although one of our experiments, a healer did accidentally kill a hypertensive rat while trying to lower its blood pressure psychically at a hospital in San Francisco. (laughs) And a lot of the book was a look back at things we already covered, but one section was about a venture he started in the early 80s after leaving SRI. One of the projects was to apply psychic abilities to the marketplace. So basically what anyone wants to do with them, go play stocks. Make Concentrate and make your stock go up. Increase share values. And here's what they did. They used a symbolic protocol, first described by a guy named Stephen Schwartz of some place called the Mobius Society. And it was apparently presented in his book, Opening to the Infinite, if anyone's curious for the source material, which I haven't had a chance to check out, but I probably should. It's right <laughs> in my alley. A different object is associated with each possible market conditions that could come about next week. So they define them as up a little, meaning less than 25% change, mm. up a lot, more than 25%, down a little or unchanged, or down a lot. And that's a 25% price increase. And each option had a symbol associated with it. And the symbols would change every exercise. So a light bulb, a flower, and the objects are chosen by someone not doing the viewing or the recording. So for example, in our scenario, it'd be my husband that chooses the symbols that I'm having you view. And I don't know what the symbols are. So he chooses four symbols. I look, I do remote viewing. I describe something. And if it corresponds to one of the symbols, then that's the prediction of what will happen in the next week. Yes. And so it's it's still double blind and only that person, so the, that third party knows the week's symbols. Isn't that really artificial compared to what they've been studying? Looking for a person in a real place is different from assigning arbitrary symbols to abstract events. Well, here's where it gets to the next level. Then the remote viewer would relay their impressions on what object was coming up for them when they focus on the market of a particular commodity for the next Friday. So in this experiment, they were doing it with silver. Okay. So what's the price of silver next Friday? You remote view and you tell me whatever object you're viewing. I don't know if it's accurate or what it means. I tell it to the other person. Then the broker would buy or sell silver futures and the contracts of them based entirely on what the viewer saw and the object associated with the whatever performance. So they didn't even wait for a track record. They just went up, down, short, sell, whatever. Exactly. Which is why why it's called associative remote viewing ah, because it's see, associated with a symbol, not with this. Yeah. You're taking an abstract concept, the market moving up and down and giving it a locus that yep. your mind can focus on. And you're just trusting that whatever in the universe powers this will align with the arbitrary symbols and allow you to view them? Well, for example, we have ways of thinking of something not that's non-physical, like emotion. 
I can, let's say I'm looking into Norm. Is he happy? What's his emotional state? Maybe I get a smiley face or a frowny face or some sort of condensed version of your emotional state or another way. symbol of... Or music or whatever. There's some way. But market conditions, by having an associated symbol with them, it it simplifies the process. So instead of how do you... What comes to you when you envision the market going up or down? I don't know. It could be anything. But if you're saying, show me... I'm looking for a symbol mm-hmm. and then you wait and okay, I'm seeing a rose. And they don't know what the symbols are. So they're they just, know what it means. they're doing normal remote viewing. We've just, Oh, that's really interesting. And at the end of the week, when the silver finally closed, they would then see that's the feedback of what the market actually did. But it's not just what happened. They are betting on it. They put some skin in the game. <laughs> they're choosing horses. I have mad respect for this and I would be willing to, to do it with, I'd be willing to go in on this experiment. (laughs) I'm a betting person. So anyway, nine forecasts in the fall of 1982, all correct. They earned $120,000. What? Which he notes was a lot of money in 1982. Hell yeah, it was. Hang on, let me get my trusty inflation calculator. (laughs) That is a little over 379,000 today. What did they start with? I would imagine 50 grand if I was guessing or 10 or something, because I assume if you're buying futures and you get, it's going to go up a lot, you overbet. They don't tell the ratios of how they're moving it, but still. And interestingly, so here's the epilogue of that experiment. And in a way, I feel this is the fate of many efforts to use psychic skills to make money. Mm. The next year, 1983, their backing investor who ponied up the dough wants to do it again. Yeah, they're nine for nine. Why not? He wants to accelerate the viewing mechanism. So instead of doing it once a week and wait until Friday, he wants them to check in twice, see if anything's changed. So you do a viewing on Monday and on Wednesday. And it totally didn't work. The feedback thing was all off. And Tari writes, my personal belief is that we had lost our spiritual and scientific focus and became overwrought with the thought of limitless wealth, although different people have different mm. opinions on the reasons for our failure to replicate the success. But we are all becoming very tired of people telling us that it must have been our lucky year. You try it. <laughs> That's wild. I, I do feel like it's a bad call just to stop doing the thing that worked. Why change anything? But that's how these things unfold. It was just like with remote viewing. They changed up the system. It seems to be part of the human condition. And it makes me want to try it and be disciplined about it. But also something I have read in remote viewing forums is that people also use this for sports betting enough to individually Mm, and on the personal, you know, make a living. Yeah, pick horses. It definitely seems that something out there. But as we learned in our interview... You keep it quiet. You don't go public with that type right. of ability. Yeah. And you would. If you're a time travel with the almanac from 2083, you don't show people that. Mm, you keep that you on the down low. And the other thing that he created that's more recent is an app called the Stargate ESP Trainer. <gasps> yeah. 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 Which is an app for your phone. So I just opened it up. Stargate ESP Trainer is designed to help you learn to describe distant or future events. It gives a little summary. This is a training game. The viewer is presented with two yes-no questions pertaining to the outdoor image you will see shortly. Your goal is to quiet your mind and become aware of that picture. You select one of the two choices by pressing the answer, which best matches your awareness of the image. And when you do that, a second question will appear, and then you repeat the process. The property matches indicator at the bottom shows the number of correct answers, the 24 questions. Four pictures will then appear. Tap the one that best matches your mental image. 
And after 12 pictures, you may begin a new game. Hmm. Good luck and great success, Russell Targ. So it's not perfect because it's giving you a multiple choice, but it's for for a person just playing with their mobile device, pretty close approximation of your standard remote viewing. So target one of 12, bridges, no bridges. And I'm not going to quiet my mind. I'm just going to tap to go through. And then next question is, is it ancient or modern? And I'll say modern. And then I've got four images. I've got a pyramid, a field of looks like violets on a farm, the Grand Canyon or a crater, and looks like a bed and breakfast house on an empty main street. Hmm. And I'll hmm. choose the pyramid. And nope, it was the flowers. So okay. that's essentially I'm definitely how getting this up. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It's like 99 cents. I recommend it. For, yeah, why not? For the curious. And that's all I got on Russell Tark. He's still alive. I reached out for an interview. Still have not heard back. So, Russell, if you're listening, call me. Would love to hear more. Wouldn't you? So, here's the other aspect of our epilogues. This is the real treat that I've got for you. The Soviet experiments. Yes, 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 yes. So, remember when we were saying how cool it would be to find descriptions of Soviet psychic experiments? Vividly. Well, I found one book that had been translated into English. One from Leonid Vasiliev, who we mentioned in part one, and it was published in 1967. And here is the table of contents of mysterious phenomena and the human psyche. Mysterious psychic phenomena as a source of superstition, sleep and dreams, hypnosis and suggestion, suggestion, autosuggestion, the waking state, automatic movement. Is there a mental radio? What can be said about extrasensory perception? Can muscular force be transmitted at a distance? Death and the superstitions associated with it. And while it sounds cool, we really got to take it with a grain of salt because uh, here's this gem that I lifted from the first chapter. Marxist-Leninistic philosophy has shown that the source of superstition and prejudice is not merely a lack of knowledge of the true laws of nature or the ignorance and misery created among the masses of capitalistic exploitation. The anarchy of capitalistic production in itself gives rise to the feeling that the individual is helpless before the alien forces of social development, and this feeling predisposes him to a mystical perception of reality. The great scientific achievement of K. Marx and F. Engels was specifically the fact that, having discovered the true laws of the development of human society, they thus created the necessary prerequisite for elimination of religious mystical prejudice in this area. A war of extinction has been declared on superstition in the Soviet Union, and our social order and the systematic day-by-day -day dissemination of political and scientific knowledge among the masses will lead to the final eradication of pseudoscientific ideas about nature, man, and society. It can be said that the sources of many of our superstitions and prejudices have already dried up. What Soviet citizen assigns mystical significance to a phenomena such as a solar eclipse or an influenza epidemic? All right. There's a lot of kind of good comrade posturing there, but I think the essence of what he's saying is old belief systems are going to be challenged. And if you untether yourself to religion, which he lumps under superstition, then you get closer to accurate explanations for the world we live in. So unfortunately, it wasn't a recounting of psychic experiments and throwing people down mine shafts. Oh. It's a report and it's more than anything, a book of conclusions. It read with mm. a debunker's finality, which, yeah. to be fair, was the point. And it confirmed that anything in dreams, no matter what elements are incredibly fantastical, has first been observed in the awake mind. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But speaking of, do you want to know my mom's tried and true method for interpreting dreams? Yes, absolutely. It actually kind of supports this conclusion by Vasiliev. So yeah, don't we say that you take your dream and you describe what is happening and the significance mm-hmm. and the feelings of it as if you're talking to an alien. So let's say you're having the typical naked before a test dream. Sure. Say, okay, I have, what's a test? I have an important thing coming up that's judging me. That's, I must pass or fail. I must prove myself or else something bad will happen. And then what's being naked? I feel vulnerable, unprepared. Mm -hmm. And running behind means that I'm not prepared, that I could lose, that it's pressing, Mm -hmm. it's really urgent. And you can get to the core of the dream that way in a really accessible way. So all you're really doing is describing the experience of the dream to try to see it a little bit more objectively. You're seeing through the fantastical elements as why did my third grade teacher show up on prom night in my dream to what those stand-ins are representing for you in in emotionally and in your internal universe of meaning. That sounds very Jungian. It's under the idea that our brain produces these images and we've yeah. associated a feeling with them. There's a reason we chose that, like a director. Yeah. But our conscious mind might not realize why we chose our third grade teacher to represent anxiety about math. The challenge in this is discerning what things are symbols and when a cigar is a cigar. Yeah, but you can play with that. I'm just telling yeah. you the method. Okay, okay. So the document also concludes the existence and effectiveness of autosuggestion and hypnosis. But takes the mystical completely out of it, which, I mean, how do you feel about hypnosis? I've been hypnotized. You know, like acupuncture is one of those things that feels new agey in the West, but to me is so well-founded and proven that it hardly feels like going out on a limb. It's also a language thing where you can describe it in fantastical terms, or you can describe it in relatively mundane terms, and the explanation still kind of holds up. Yeah. I mean, there's many people who balk at the idea of getting acupuncture for migraines or seeing a hypnotist to quit smoking. But I think Hmm. the methods of self-hypnosis, well, besides the fact that I think those are two things that those methods are really useful for, look at smoking, see a hypnotist. But I also think the methods of self-hypnosis, recording an induction track on your phone and suggestions, or doing the written exercise, this will strike me as a similar methodology to manifesting exercises or getting into a trance state shamanic journey, remote viewing, they all seem to play in the same area of calming the conscious mind in order to go deeper. It's just different ritualistic practices, right? You're just going through a different pattern, whether you call it self-hypnosis or you repeat a mantra or you count your breaths or whatever. So that seemed to be held up as real to our Soviet friend, but he took Mm -hmm. again all the the fun parts out of it. And anyway, he, Vasiliev also had a pretty clear cut takeaway of seances and talking boards by mm. what he called their excitory movements and idiomotor actions, basically micro movements. Mm. Yeah. And had a diagram of how spirituals were messing with table legs. He wrote diagrams for the little like levitating with your foot. But oddly enough, he linked this to how we get prosthetics to work or rather Bioelectric currents were ingeniously employed by workers at the Moscow Institute of Prosthetics and Prosthesis Design in a remarkable model of a functioning human hand, which I've never thought about it. I don't know much about that at all, but it strikes me for pretty modern for 1967. Well, it's it's that very materialist Soviet philosophy that you were talking about, where they weren't even concerned with, does it work? 
and they're going, how, where's the part that does this? Or, you know, how, how do we explain this in material? Like he's saying, non-superstitious, non-religious terms. God, I want their, their, <laughs> I want the insider scoop on what their experiments looked like to this end for him to be drawing all these conclusions for such seemingly wide ranging areas and topics. He's got incredible confidence. I would love to see the methodology unpacked for remote viewing. He did miss, he dismisses automatic writing as from spiritualism. <laughs> and I assume all incarnation since by saying in actuality, only the secret thoughts and desires, the forgotten and half forgotten impressions of the writer appear in automatic writing, which, okay. But I also think well, it's a slick method for accessing a more creative and self-reflective part of yourself. Yeah. I would also argue that this is basically my explanation of seeing the golf courses. Mm. Consciously, unconsciously, I know Eduardo likes to golf. It stands to reason that he would have chosen a golf course. And I didn't think golf consciously, but for mm. you to think that I called it correctly, I think corresponds to exactly what he just described. And he takes apart the idea of a mental radio or that, for example, when someone you love dies and you're in another place and you sort of feel it which mm. I found just especially tragic to, for him to come oh. to that conclusion. I mean, I'm not a stranger to the erasure of religion that comes with Marxism in societies, yeah. especially thinking of you know, China and the USSR. But reading it was just such a bummer. And I know I said in the previous episode, you know, how finding the physical cause of psychic phenomena was the ideological compulsion fueling the funding right. of the research. But reading it was the equivalent to eating a tasteless ham sandwich. Like it was just... Oh. Uh, to but read he, it in writing, this feeling of like every yeah. sentimental feeling you have about how you're connected to your loved ones across space and time right, means right. nothing. It's like, jeez. Oh, but he's also kind of saying there's no magic in the universe. But it sounds like he's still writing it from a very, I don't know, maybe I'm in, I'm projecting this, but it sounds like he's writing from a place of extreme enthusiasm and curiosity. Like, yeah, these are materialist explanations, but it's still exciting to be able to understand the real potential of the universe. So to give you an example about how Vasiliev dismisses certain psychic functions, here's a response he has to examples he lays out of a woman being able to detect colors through her hands. Hmm. It's probable that I.P. Pavlov, yeah, the Pavlov from the dogs, yeah. was referring to such phenomena on one occasion. Having described the extremely fine differentiation of a conditioned stimuli in experiments on dogs, he, Pavlov, continued, in human beings, Higher conscious activity runs counter to these lower faculties of differentiation and displaces fine differentiation. That this is so is demonstrated by the fact that the differential ability is heightened in some individuals when their normal conscious activity is altered. In special states of so-called clairvoyance, the human differential capacity becomes infinitely precise. This concept of Pavlov reduces the fact that the highest activity of the cerebral cortex, conscious activity, can suppress or inhibit more primitive cortical functions, and it's extended in an interesting discussion of the biophysicist N.D. Nyberg. The maximum sensitivity, which appears only in exceptional cases, is thus the sensitivity of the receptors, the peripheral sense organs, themselves, is always inherent in them. However, there is a more central apparatus that regulates sensitivity and does not permit the individual to make full use of it at will. This apparatus seems to me to be something on the order of the full proofing used in technology, if such comparison is possible. Only under extraordinary conditions does this protective apparatus pass extremely weak signals, which the body cannot utilize. Some cases of telepathy can perhaps be explained in this manner. 
The increase in the sensitivity of the sense organs observed in nervous diseases, especially in that lady, can be attributed to the attenuation of the functioning of this apparatus. God damn, that's a lot. <laughs> that, that might be the most dense quote that you've thrown out. It's a lot of words, but he's basically saying that humans have a higher sense of perception than is accessible yeah. by their conscious mind. And part of that is lies in the brain and human conditioning. And when something extraordinary, right. just like the reasoning for why people can have a photographic memory, that your brain's not doing the thing of wiping oh, the yeah. day's it's events. Un, it's unfiltered. Yeah. So in, in trying to define and examine the parameters for classical conditioning, mm -hmm. ring the bell, dog salivates, he's suggesting that more perception is happening than the traditional senses that we're all familiar with. And that sort of jives with how we understand, you know, there's so much going on in the body that we're not aware of and that we don't control. We don't control our heartbeat, our digestion, these things. If, yeah. And then only in extreme cases would whatever mechanism separates that break down to the point that you'd be able to. Okay. So like you don't, you don't think about or notice your digestion until you're having digestive disruption, right? Or another case could be people who are super flexible. But like contortion is yeah, flexible? Yeah, like you're not possessed by the devil when you twist your head all the way around. Oh. You're just super flexible. <laughs> or when you right, bend right. over backwards really weirdly. Yeah. yeah, you might already have looser joints or double joints or whatever, and then you're building on that. Or you're more capable of hmm. it when the conscious mind isn't trying to protect your joints, so it'll allow yeah, more yeah, movement. Yeah. You're, you're challenging what, what can be bent, whereas I would be, <laughs> yeah, very reluctant to even try. Okay. And what I think what stayed with me through this series is just how ill-suited psychic phenomena is to lab conditions. And I think mm. about this as distinct from the likes of, you know, Harry Houdini and James Randi. I think tricks and stagecraft should remain known and current, mm. that sort of constant knowing of the state of the art. And I yep. love a good stage magic show who doesn't. And I don't know how it works, but I don't mistake it for the supernatural. Right. It's, but it's I, fun. I trust that expert practitioners know how it is being done, and I can enjoy it without <laughs> misunderstanding what is actually happening. You know, meanwhile, a meaningful experience of, say, feeling connected to a loved one at time of their death or having mm. a soulful knowing I, I don't appreciate some dude pointing out how that sort of thing can't exist on the level I'm interpreting it at in my head. Terms that you're using. Or in the terms. Nomenclature seems deeply important to all of this. It also reminds me of what's known about pain. And mm. did you know about what's called the Descartes model of pain? Yes. I had a chronic pain issue a couple of years ago that I'm just now getting out of. Rolfing, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he explained in one of these books about chronic pain, not Descartes, another person, that, you know, if you cut your hand, it rings a little bell in your brain to signal that the pain is there and that's connected. Mm. But there's dysfunction, you should do something about it. And it's here where the pain is located. But that theory was disproven when they studied amputees who would still experience pain in the limb that's Phantom no longer pain. there, Yeah, which led to this appreciation that pain can have a non-physical source or being total psychosomatic, which when I first understood that word, it's like, oh, it's all in your head. It's not real. But just because it's in your head doesn't mean the pain isn't real or that your nervous system isn't interpreting something as physical pain. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't that just mean there's more than one input that can trigger the response? Yes. Or trigger the perception? Yeah. You can have purely physical pain. I poke you, you feel it. But you can also trigger that pain even if 
that limb isn't there. You can still have the response activated. And we're so open to this now when we talk about the mind-body connection or people's awareness yeah. of, you know, emotional things causing certain diseases and or being right, contributing right. factors. And I think that's the thing about Vasiliev is that he's not wrong in looking for the physical or rather the non-mystical, you know, superstitious mm-hmm. connection. But, you know, the Sovietness of it that's really decisive is just so off-putting. It isn't fun to take magic out of the world, but he is a good scientist in that he's calling for mundane, more mundane standardized language so that we can speak critically and progress understanding as opposed to drawing in. No, the, the more cultural historical stuff you bring in, the more fuzzy your language gets, and then it's hard to learn anything. Mundane language seems to be the key to a lot of stuff is if you can describe it in mundane language and it's still, mm-hmm. you can still see the usefulness, you can still yeah. see the relevance. Like, for example, hypnosis, how he couldn't, he didn't discredit it. He just think this is hypnosis. He didn't talk about how it's useful. He didn't extrapolate it. Just right, this right. exists. And that's something that I really take out of this series on remote viewing is that you can sit like that and just say, oh, psychic phenomena like this exists and people can do it the end. And it can be this baseline of an understanding about realness. Mm-hmm. Which is where your dad seemed to be coming from. Just Absolutely. like, oh yeah, this is totally real. It's well documented. No, I've never experienced it. <laughs> and I, I think that's really useful to sort of live in that space of ex- accepting its effects without, for example, acupuncture, you can get into the meridians, you can get into how the logic of how it works, or you can say this can get rid of my migraines in about six weeks. Isn't that how all science works for the layperson? Like I'm not a scientist. So I don't I don't need to go out and experience dinosaur fossils to credulously accept the the fossil record and the history, you know, the, the earth is millions of years old and all that. But I think that's also applicable to so many things in the spirit world that want to function that way. You need closure with the dead relative talk to a medium and Mm. see if you can find that closure that thing you're looking for that you know you're in and out you've punched your card you need protection on something that's happening talk to a spiritual specialist that will put up the protection you don't need to be devotional or buying in on the soul level to make use of things in the unseen world would this be analogous to you're very reluctant to a certain diagnosis maybe because it's scary. You want to see the microscope picture. You want to see the problem with the cell. Yeah, I suppose. It could be, for example, if we're going to use the illness, a doctor telling you, you know, you've got, I'm not going to use cancer because that has bad connotations, but let's say you've got a, a problem with your shoulder. You've got chronic pain. And here's how we could treat it. You get physical therapy, blah, blah, blah. And you have some ideas of what could have caused it. Oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. But there's nothing, it doesn't have a quick fix. And then you can also talk to someone, uh, to a psychic or a healing person or someone who does rituals around healing. And they say, this thing happened to you and it's creating an emotional weight. And until you deal with this emotional thing, that pain's going to follow you around. So they give you the steps to deal with it. Or another tradition doesn't need too much of your buy-in and just kind of casts it off whatever. There's different ways to approach it than just slogging through physical therapy, which you should probably do as well, but there's more tools in the toolkit. I mean, the the Soviet outlook on that seems to be, we really need to find out what's actually happening. Whereas as a lay person, you can kind of go, does it matter if stretching releases endorphins or helps break up tissue or stimulates blood flow? Do I need to know what's actually happening or do I just need to know I do this and this works. Well, look at the whole de-religious, religification of yoga, 
which was mm, so yeah. deeply connected to first breathing. And the physical yeah. stuff is one of the last elements of it and is seen as a real antidote to meditation and putting mm -hmm. yourself in that state. And now people use it for fitness. Right. So my last little epilogue is The Men Who Stare at Goats. And <laughs> of course. since anyone who might have been a little like me, this was their gateway into the story. Yeah, and guilty. we really effectively only dove into part of the book because the book deals with other branches of the military than our right. little guys in Fort Meade and other parts in time. And the characters in the movie are proxies for people in the book as well. So yeah. including Ronson, the author, and a lot of the characters weren't mentioned in the series, like Jin Channon and the New Earth Battalion. That's a different story than what we covered. And <laughs> if our main narrative was Dunder Mifflin, those guys are in a in the California office. I see. Okay. It's it's a fun wa watch, but it has precious little to do with either the real history of what we've been talking about for three episodes. But movies are a great jumping off point to stimulate curiosity and put you on a seeker's journey to figure out what is actually real about a story. I think it's the most common entry point. I think mm -hmm. both it was true for us and probably for our listeners. Yeah. And it's the thing I have the least to say about. That's fine. <laughs> I, after reading so many books about for the series, I find mm -hmm. Ronson's style intimate and cinematic. He interviews everybody sure. and he gets really up close and personal and you can kind of see the it's cinematic. You can it's so close up. But I was really craving some overview that I got from some yeah, of the other books. Yeah. And then we're at final thoughts. What are some of your key takeaways from the from the series? I can't think too deeply about all the military and intelligence stuff just because and I think the conversation with your dad really pulls that into sharp relief where it's just so frustrating. The the bureaucracy and the limitations. It's on the one hand really cool that they explored this and gave us some new, you know, literature and information. But it's also like that was never going to be how we proved this. That was never going to be discovered. And, you know, despite the language used by our Soviet friend, I feel like you kind of have the same problem there. You're, you're still looking for a very militaristic application. But it's relatively easy for me to dismiss a lot of that and just hang on to the something about this is real. Something is happening. There's lots of evidence. There's lots of records. I am going to get the app. I want to see if I can stretch this muscle. Yeah, for all the information you told me, you've really just whetted my appetite and made me want to go out and learn more. One of my big takeaways is it felt like a settling of this pesky issue of realness that I mm, bump up yeah. against again and again. I'm sure a lot of people that flirt in this space do as well. If we accept this premise and all this groundwork that yes, a psychic skill like remote viewing is possible and also learnable mm -hmm. by the vast majority of people, it's easy to just accept the existence of psychism as a phenomenon period. And I find this really settling because instead of constantly battling with that part of myself that says, yeah, yeah, but this is all woo-woo and how can you prove it? And adding a disclaimer to my own thoughts and mm -hmm. also when I talk to other people, it, it allows me to just let that all go and say, okay, so this type of thing's out there. It's it's provable. It's, do it's just a thing. Well, that's a leap though. Well, provable that you're right. You're going from this is out there to this type of thing is out there. This is out there. Because you can make a very large umbrella to cover one thing that you know exists. Well, and I'm not saying that everyone who does RV is right, or anyone right. claiming to have psychic abilities is is accurate. I think it's a real yeah. spectrum of ability and how they can mm -hmm. filter it. But I can definitely say, yeah, this is totally out there and people can do this. It, it feels like stepping off of a ledge into a wondrous world of possibility. But on the other hand, 
it's a little disheartening to see, you know, okay, this is definitely what would happen if the government got their hands on a sort of mystic arts. Yeah, yeah. But it's a little bit like letting go of this feeling of, well, I have materialism, having to prove everything that's the edge of the pool and just starting to tread water and saying, okay, well, what else is out here? And still needing to be self-aware so that you don't believe any psychic, this is, well, I've seen something or I've Mm -hmm. remote viewed something. Obviously, you wouldn't believe to that extent. And I don't want to keep beating to death this issue of realness, but I think it's something that the woo curious people really struggle with. I certainly do. Oh, yeah. Because it just leads you feeling like all claims of psychic ability are real and or they're all frauds. And that's an easier place to live than this spectrum of some people are really accurate and some people aren't or sometimes they get a hit and sometimes they get a miss because absolutes are always more reassuring than nuance because it's. It's sort of like, what do you do with that information? You have to decide for yourself. If a psychic comes up and tells you, you're like, maybe a couple of these things are accurate. The first thing we try to do is try to fit the whole astrological horoscope to make it work. Right, right. And one of the favorite phrases I like from a gifted people I do follow is they say, take what resonates, which Mm -hmm. if you're skeptical can say, well, yeah, you take the thing that sounds good to you and none of it has meaning. Or you could say, take the thing that's landing and sticking in your head and has meaning for you. It's essentially saying the same thing, but with two different connotations. One's dismissive, one's more empowering. That's good advice in the material world too. Mm -hmm. Like someone, someone can look through binoculars and they can describe what they're seeing objectively up to a point And they can also start saying, there's a bird. I think it's this kind of bird. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? So accept what what resonates in that context would be, accept what, you know, we we have definitive facts and then we have interpretations of facts. I don't know. I think it's good advice anyway. At the same time, as a technique, I don't know that remote viewing alone has a lot to offer the spiritual seeker. It it seems like a fun way to build up the psychic muscle by having this feedback and again, building trust especially when you observe this protocol about getting feedback. But as for like the big questions and how you step off into the unknown, mm-hmm. I'm worried that that's how you end up observing aliens and calling into coast to coast. <laughs> I find that, you know, these find well, and predict questions, you know, the military wanted but couldn't use remote viewing for. That's also the things right. we want to do. And to appreciate remote viewing as a technique requires discipline. So for example, I, I really think we should start this experiment, like put some money in, you could do crypto or something oh, easy. God. And yeah. because it requires discipline, but the natural state mm. is to want to push it farther, do more, just like how the military wanted to so we'll predict the future, try again. And if you can just appreciate as a technique and the limits of the technique, yeah. you can get some results. And that's a for me, the path of the personal rather than this panacea for let's fix everything. Let's apply it to the establishment instead of let's make, you know, Morgan Norm some beer money. Well, we saw this in the Karate Kid, right? The point was never to wax the car. The point was to build muscle memory that allowed you to advance skills. And no single move was all of the karate that the Karate Kid needed to learn. But he was going through different motions to be ready to do more. I think we're left in a place of both appreciating a new psychic technique, mm-hmm. wondering, some, not so hard what to do with it, because what to do with it seems a little obvious. It's mm-hmm. it's almost mundane. It's, like it's just one of those things. I don't know what mm-hmm. I want to remote view in my life other than, you know, is Bitcoin going to go up or down next week so we can make a little hustle? Yeah. But <laughs> it's... It's the internet. 
it didn't solve everything and you still have to decide what you want to look for. There's a hell of a lot out there, but it's not like you understand everything just because you have access to all the information. And I think breaking up with absolutisms, breaking up with yeah. this idea of all psychics are frauds, all psychics are right. Anyone who predicts if you, mm -hmm. you know, that's the challenging part and the uncomfortable part. But that's the good work Houdini taught us to do. Because he didn't think everyone was a fraud. He just wanted to remove definitive frauds from the conversation. Uh, I think that has a lot of merit. I do think Houdini got a little salty as he got older. Because he, no one's going to claim this prize. But maybe in his little boy heart of hearts, his non-salty little core, he wanted someone to come mm. and win that prize. Oh, he absolutely did. But I also think, to your point, the people who can really do it aren't calling attention to themselves. The people who can really do it would never go for the money. Exactly. Houdini's out there going, it's Penn and Teller's fool us, right? Mm -hmm. They're asking stage magicians to come up and do a trick so well that they can't figure out how it was done. So, of course, the only people coming out there are ones who think they've, they've gotten so practiced in the art that they can stump Houdini. So, no, he's not drawing in the real psychic. So he would get salty because... He's really good at debunking people who do what he does <laughs> and call it something else. And he's really wanting to see the real thing and is realizing, I went about this the wrong way to attract those people. Well, it's like what my in the interview with my father where he said the woman in the gas mm. station, you know, healing zone with a touch. That's where Houdini yeah. would have that experience. Yeah, which is kind of a nice thought, I think. <laughs> <laughs>